So we'll get on into the sermon. Now, last time I spoke, before Larry gave his, I thought, very fine sermon last week on uh, the analogy of the destruction of the Titanic, uh, we left off and I, at the end of Isaiah 39, had been seeing through the book of Isaiah to this point, uh, the relationship of the Assyrian to God's people or the Israelitish people here in the end, and of course woven through all that story is a message to the church, uh, first and foremost to the church, secondarily then to the nation. And I want to pick it up again there at the end of 39, uh, because there was, as you will recall, we made a parallel between what King Hezekiah did of Israel and what Herbert Armstrong did with spiritual Israel today. And I don't know that that is a direct type, but interesting. And then that ends in terms of the relationship between Hezekiah and the Assyrian who is about to come into the land. We'll see more of that a little later on, but there's a change in chapter 39 where the king of Babylon was also involved. And Hezekiah had showed Babylon basically everything that Israel had. And I made the uh, comparison about how Herbert Armstrong had gone around the world and had pretty well shown the world everything we had and invited the world in through the AICF and uh, various other functions, uh, meetings in the auditorium and so on, uh, concerts from this world and so on, and the auditorium to be a part of it, to do all those things in a sense with us treasures of Israel. But this is a transition time. And chapter 40 is a major transition from what we've been talking about thus far in the book of Isaiah, about the Assyrian and about the church, uh, the spiritual Jew here at the end. But I want to go back and review it just a little bit here toward the end of it. Chapter or verse 5 of chapter 39, Isaiah. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Eternal of hosts. Behold, the days come, that all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have laid up in store until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Eternal. Now I focus somewhat on that in that last sermon, but I'd like to say a little more today, uh, partly as review and partly to add a few other thoughts to it. If we have established in this series that Babylon is represented by primarily this nation, and perhaps along with the United Kingdom and other, the other nations of Israel, but we are the leader of Israel today, and in that sense, the leader of Babylon and the leader of the world. Everything that was in the church was going to be carried into Babylon, just as ancient Judah went into the captivity of Babylon, so will the spiritual Jew here at the end. And indeed, we've been living within Babylon these nearly 70 years 
since the church was formed here at the end time age. Those who forsake the covenant in Daniel 11 are said to have intelligence with the beast. So there is a direct connection between those who forsake the covenant of God, and that could only be those who have the covenant of God. You cannot forsake it unless you have it. There are a lot of people today who are forsaking the New Testament covenant that we made with God at baptism and when we were placed in the body of Christ in this end-time age. Now, those who are leading the church wholesale back into Babylon, I believe, will have intelligence with the beast. I think that should be quite clear. And I made a point sometime before, and he brings it up here in a, this is somewhat of a summary of what has been going before and what we have been talking about the last few weeks. Everything will be carried to Babylon, and I think I mentioned last time that that ties probably quite well with Zechariah 5, where two unclean birds, whom I will put in this analogy as Tkachas, carry the church, the harvest, the mouthpiece of God, into Babylon and set, upon, set it upon its base in Babylon. I have never heard an explanation of Zechariah 5 that made any sense until you tie it together with the church today and what is going on. And certainly that context is of Zechariah 3 and 4, the two witnesses at the end and their dealings with the church, and right after that, at the time when they are about to come on the scene, the church is being taken back to Babylon and left there. And that is the deplorable situation in the church today. I would also say that a lot of little splinter lifeboats, as Larry used in the analogy last week, that is, churches of God who have gone away from the mothership, are also leading the people slowly but inexorably back into Babylon. And they certainly are not doing much to lead the church out of Babylon. They might not, some of them, be leading it further in, but by contrast, how much are they leading them out? And of your sons that shall issue from you, which you shall beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now here, I think this story begins to tie directly with the book of Daniel. Hezekiah was told that his sons would go there and be eunuchs. It did not seem to bother Hezekiah much as long as there was peace and truth in his days. It didn't matter to him somehow that his sons would be castrated and become eunuchs in the courts of Babylon. And basically, that is where we are today. There is a chapter here in Isaiah about the eunuchs who keep the Sabbath. And I have explained that before, that we essentially today are eunuchs. We are powerless. Powerless to reproduce ourselves, if you will. 
powerless to do any word to spread that would cause more people to be called, and all those who sow seed are shooting blanks, if I may be so bold. Nothing is happening. Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego are four of those eunuchs who are dealt with. And if my premise here, that this nation represents Babylon specifically, not just as a system, we know the whole Babylonian system is going down, the whole world society, when Christ returns. But there is a specific entity mentioned in the book of Revelation that the beast destroys. Now, the beast is part of the whole system of Satan's society anyway, so in a larger sense, it's all Babylon and confusion. And yet, God makes it clear in Scripture that there is one specific entity which represents the entirety of Babylon, and that that entity will be destroyed by the beast. So Babylon is not the beast, it is destroyed by the beast. Now remember that Abraham, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were right there at the end of the 70 years of captivity before Babylon would be destroyed and the Jews would be released to go back to Jerusalem. So, if Babylon today is represented primarily by the United States and Great Britain, then what happens to us? Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom represented Babylon. Those men represented God's people. There was a titanic clash between Nebuchadnezzar and God's people. And I submit to you that again there will be a clash between God's people and this world, not only this world, but this nation. The leaders of this nation, if it represents Babylon, will come against the church. Could that be any clearer? They built monuments to themselves in those days, Nebuchadnezzar did. And America has built idols and monuments to itself. Anyone who goes up against those idols will have Babylon and all its strength come against them. Anytime we say, get away from Babylon, we are saying, if you make that separation, Babylon will come after you. They came after Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And only by the great power of God were their lives even preserved. We are coming to that same type of clash today, in which God's people, figuratively at least, will be fed to the lions. They will be cast in the fire, and only God 
can save us. That is where we are headed. Now, you might think it's time to pick up our skirts and run. Because when you have that thing, kind of thing coming against you, is that not what is natural? But Daniel didn't, did he? He stood before the king. And God found, showed a way of deliverance. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, We will not bow down. And God gave them deliverance. God says in the book of Revelation, and we've already read it in this series, all will worship the beast. All will bow down before the beast, except the very elect. Only the spiritual Jew will say, I will not bow down. We committed ourselves at the time of baptism to put our hand to the plow and never turn back. To run, you have to turn back. We have to go somewhere and make a stand. We told God that we were his, whether we live or whether we die, as Paul put it. And he who seeks to save his life physically will lose it, and he who seeks to lose it in Christ will save it eternally. You and I have no recourse but to stand as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood and would not bow down. We will have no other choice. Christ even said that we would have to give up land, fathers, mothers, wives, husbands, sons and daughters, houses, but in so doing, we would receive more, and even in this life also. Many of us gave up our relatives, or most of them, when we came into God's church. We lost, in some cases, lands and homes. We lost family members. We became alienated from them. But in this life, we have already received fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, already. Because we are in the family of God. And we need to act like it. So, we were supposed to count the cost before we were ever baptized, weren't we? And we were told, repent and be baptized. The clash is coming. Now, the, the setting here is of the time when the Assyrian is about to come into the land, the end time, when Babylon has a hold on us, and it says we'll be carried to Babylon and nothing left, and it would be, we would be eunuchs before the king of Babylon. It is a time of transition 
where Babylon is about to be destroyed, as per Revelation 17 and 18. Now, what is the message to God's people at this time? What should it be? Isaiah 40 is a transition from what went before in chapter 39. And that we need to carefully consider because we are in a time of great destruction. What should be the message when there is a time of great destruction, spiritual problems, the church falling apart, that which God has built being destroyed and not one stone left upon another in terms of the church? If you were to deliver a message during that kind of time, what message should it be? Let's see. Chapter 40. Just as we are about to go up against the king of Babylon, the message is, comfort you, comfort you, my people. That's the beginning of it. That there is a way of escape. There is an answer to this problem. This church right now is being swallowed up by Babylon. Worldwide in particular, and the rest six months behind, more or less. But he says, comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. There is a scripture in Isaiah that says our iniquity will be pardoned in one day. That God is going to turn around and forgive us and begin to shine his face on us in one day. So in the midst of this series in which we're talking about this nation and ultimately this world being destroyed... We must not forget an element of comfort and that God will not forsake his people. That our warfare is almost accomplished. He says he will not bring us to the birth and not let us bring forth. We've covered that. We only go so far in this mass destruction that is occurring and then God turns it around, only for his people. Picture yourself in the grip of Babylon, and they start building this great idol of Nebuchadnezzar in front of your very eyes, and you know, you know that you know they're going to say, bow down and worship it. And you're caught in a trap. We know that the beast is rising, and that all who will not worship the beast will be killed. We are in the exact same position for Daniel and the three we're in. The whole world will worship it, except the few who will not bow down. 
But with Daniel, his warfare was almost accomplished, wasn't it? When that was built and they stood it up before him and he said, I will not, his deliverance occurred. That's when it happened. He was thrown in with the hungry lions, and their mouths were stopped. And then the guys that were responsible for throwing him there were thrown in, and they were dead before they ever got to the bottom of the den. That is a comfort to consider. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were about to be thrown into a fiery furnace, and they saw them stoking it up seven times hotter. Going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. The fire before us will blaze. And they will seek us out, since we do not go along with the system, and they will try to throw us in the fire. And they may throw us in the fire. But our deliverance occurs then. I believe there will be persecution and martyrdom before the church ever goes to a place of safety. That's what Matthew 24 talks about, and it is in that order. That we are going to have to stand for what we believe or else. And we do not want to lose eternal life. Our deliverance is close, brethren. Now, right after they were delivered, what happened to Babylon? It fell. And they were released to go back to Jerusalem. So part of the message is to cry and speak comfortably that her warfare is accomplished. This war that we have been fighting is almost over if we're near the end. And I'll tell you something. Aside from all prophecy, we are near the end of life on this earth as we have known it. I saw a picture the other day on the news of what they call the gyre in the South Pacific. It's an area that covers almost the whole middle of the Pacific, and that's a big ocean where the water circulates in a big circle. The currents go round and round. And it is so filled with flotsam and jetsam of society in the form of plastic that it is almost unbelievable. These last 40 years since plastic has been the mainstay of our society, we have been dumping it in the oceans wholesale. Ships drop it there, Cities wash it out to sea. They showed pictures of jellyfish. And they had pieces of plastic all through them where their tissue had glommed on to the plastic. The seas are quickly being depleted of fish. Used to, we wanted cod. Now if you go to a restaurant, you might get cod, but in most cases you will get pollock disguised as cod because the cod is almost gone. And they are now depleting this, the uh, 
Pollock supply. The waters are filthy. The waters are almost empty. On land, the cows are being fed junk, and we're getting mad cow. And one out of three, and headed toward one out of two, Americans will have cancer before they die. Our way of living is about to destroy us. And not only that, we have madmen who would want to destroy us. That's just a fact of life, and it has nothing to do necessarily with this book. It's what's going on and around the world, whether you read this or not. Mankind cannot exist, as he presently does, much longer. Our food supply is polluted and we're sick and getting sicker. So I believe, on that basis alone, that these prophecies are very near to being fulfilled. All right, let's move on. We, brethren, are near the end of our warfare. The only problem is the climax is going to be worse than anything we've ever gone through before. But it's almost over. And if we trust in God that he will deliver us, he will. There are psalms about he trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him. That's in the Messiah. They will mock and laugh because this whole world system that is trying to take over right now is going to mock anyone who would worship God. Oh, let him deliver it, okay? Well, what does God say? Her warfare is accomplished, her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received the eternal's hand double for all her sins. God is saying, I am going to bless you double for what you have gone through as a result of your sins. What the church is going through right now is a result directly of sin. Sins that you and I committed. That's why God is dispersing the church. But he's going to turn around and reward us double if we repent and serve him. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness. This is part of the message that must be given at the end. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. That is a vital part of the message that the ministry as a whole should be giving the people today. Get ready, Christ is coming. Prepare the bride, the groom is on his way. Now there are two things on their way. I think we already read the scripture. If we didn't, we will get to it eventually where it says, no, that's in Jeremiah, we haven't gotten there yet. The destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. And Jesus Christ is also on his way. Central to the 
commission that the ministry should be preaching to the people today is a message of comfort. You will be delivered. Get ready. Christ is coming. Is that not what John the Baptist preached? The Messiah is coming. Prepare yourselves. In this scripture right here, Christ referred to directly when he talked of John the Baptist. We'll see that a little later. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the eternal, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. A place that he can get to easily. A place where he can walk to get to his people. That reminds me in a way of ancient Israel camped out in the desert where he said, cover all waste because I want to be able to walk among you and I don't want to step in anything. He wants to be able to come to us and not step in anything. And he will come suddenly to his temple, as Malachi tells us. When our warfare is accomplished and our iniquity is pardoned, he will come to us suddenly in one day. We need a highway prepared so that he can easily get to us. If he has to fight through all our attitudes and our sins and our problems, it makes it difficult for him to reach us. Now, John the Baptist preached literally and physically in the desert. But he preached a spiritual message. And we need a spiritual message today. Our spirit is failing. We have quenched the spirit of God as a church. We must renew it and seek him with our whole hearts. And prepare ourselves for his return. Now notice the context here. Every valley, verse 4, shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. That will be done before Zerubbabel and Zechariah 4, because he's a type of Christ. It will be done when Christ returns in terms of the governments, big and little, of this world who are made flat. Perhaps some of the mountains will come lower. Perhaps the valleys will be exalted physically. But the main thing that needs changed is not Mount Everest or Mount Whitney or Denali. What really needs changed are the mountains that men have built. Their governments. Their way of doing things. Whitney and Everest are not bothering a whole lot, are they? Where is the problem? It's in the governments of men. It is in the hearts of men. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, 
the return of Christ, the glory of God. Now, there are those who teach against us having an end-time John the Baptist. There are those who are very skeptical of it. And we'll look at those scriptures here in a little bit. But I want you to notice the context here. When he speaks of Isaiah 40, verse 3, and remember Jesus Christ, as we shall see in a moment, directly tied this verse to the original John the Baptist, I ask you, what is the context of Isaiah 40? It is not of the first coming of Christ. The context here is of all the hills and valleys smashed down and the glory of the Lord being revealed. In other words, the original John the Baptist was a type preparing the way for Christ's first coming in which he did not knock down the hills and mountains and in which his glory was certainly not revealed. So even though there was a fulfillment which Christ certainly spoke of, and it did happen, there was one who prepared the way for his first coming, does it make any sense there would be no one to prepare for his second coming? Especially when the verse that Christ spoke of, referring to John the Baptist, is in the exact context of the return of Christ when he will come in glory. In other words, I submit to you, there has to be an end time, John the Baptist. It has to occur. Based on this context, otherwise, Christ would have been doing violence to Isaiah to pull that one verse out and say, this is of John the Baptist, but the rest of it cannot be. It only had to do with him. The context will not allow that. John the Baptist was a fulfillment of this verse, but not the final fulfillment. So part of the message is that the governments of man are going to be destroyed. When Jesus Christ comes, all flesh shall see it together. Doesn't Matthew say in Luke that when he returns, every eye will see him? They'll all see it together. For the mouth of the Eternal has spoken it. The voice said, cry. Well, all right. Cry out. Cry aloud. And spare not. And tell my people their sins is another thing that Isaiah said. That was what he cried. But here the voice just says, cry. And he said, okay, what shall I cry? What shall I say? What shall the message be? And he, oh, okay, then he, the question is answered. All flesh is grass. And all the godliness or goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. So he's saying that all mankind can be compared to grass and flowers. 
The grass withers, the flower fades. Everything that is flesh is going to wither and fade away. Because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people is grass. It reminds me of an expression. I'll put it a little differently. Your behind is grass. That's what God's telling us here. You are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God shall stand forever. In other words, everything that is flesh, man's whole society, is going to be replaced by God's society. Everything that man is doing and has done is going to go away, just like grass does in the fall or the flower that fades when winter comes. That's where we're headed. So look around you. Everything that man is doing on this earth is going away. There should be a message there for us. If it is going away, it must not be any good. It must be worthless. It must be vain. It must be futile. It must be against God. Because if Christ is going to come and destroy everything that man is doing, then he obviously does not agree with it. That should lead us to consider everything that is going on that we are a part of. We need a policy of apartheid. That is separation. We must separate ourselves from everything that man is doing. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So he says, it's governments, it's society, everything is going to fade and wither and be gone. O Zion that bring good tidings, and that is not really a good translation. The Hebrew says, O you that tell good tidings to Zion. You that tell good tidings to Zion, get you up into the high mountain. A mountain is a government. At some point, God's ministry, those whom God chooses to do the job, will have to go up against the mountains, the governments of this world. Just as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Go to the big governments, not the little ones. O you that tell good tidings to Jerusalem, who are Zion and Jerusalem? Anybody remember Hebrews 12, 22, and 23? That's the church. Someone in the church has to tell the good news to the church, to Zion and to Jerusalem. You that bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with strength. What did God tell us in Haggai and in Zephaniah? 
be strong, be of good courage, stand up and work. That is what God wants done at the end. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. That was another part that he told the church and the witnesses in the book of Haggai. Be strong. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Christ is coming. Prepare the way. Make an announcement. Tell people the end is near. The return of Christ is almost upon us. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Or as my margin says, he will come against the strong. He throws challenges to them. He says, gather yourselves. Do you want to fight? All right, we'll fight. Gather together. We'll see what happens to you. And his arm shall rule. He's going to come with a rod of iron, isn't he? <coughs> Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. This ties very well with Revelation 11, verse 18. Revelation 11. And the nations were angry, verse 18, and your wrath is come. Will the nations be angry against God's people who come in the form of two at least and maybe more, as we'll see in Micah, and stand against them? Was Nebuchadnezzar angry at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when he thought his idol was being spurned? Now oh, the nations are angry. They're angry against physical Israel and want a coalition against it, and they are certainly going to become angry at spiritual Israel. Because most of physical Israel who survives the Assyrian coming into our land will bow down to the beast. Only the spiritual Jew will not. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should give rewards to your servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear your name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. So that's what Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 40. His reward is with him, and his work before him, or again, it says, recompense for his work is before him. What is the recompense of Christ's work? What is his work? His work is to produce children for the Father. And he will receive recompense for that work at his return when 144,000 are resurrected and go before him to be with him to be presented before the Father on the sea of glass. That is the recompense for his work. He is rewarded for his work. And we are rewarded with eternal life for submitting to the master potter and yielding into his hands. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. 
He's going to take care of his people. And then Isaiah uses somewhat of the language of Job, doesn't he? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Where were you when I created Leviathan? Where were you when the heavens and the earth were made? It's the same rhetoric that God used with Job to get his message across. You think you governments of man are going to stand against God? Where were you when I weighed the earth in a scale? When I counted the sands of the sea? Who has directed the spirit of the eternal or being his counselor has taught him? Is anything God's learned from you or me? Not a thing. And then he changes in verse 15. He says, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. Did you ever hold a bucket, let's say a, a stainless steel milk pail, under a faucet and have one drip hit it? Pink. God says all the nations, all the peoples, all the governments of the world are like one drop in a bucket. That's all they amount to. Now, we're pretty impressed with them, aren't we? I guess. Pretty impressed with what man has done on this earth. Created great public works and spend lots of money and do a lot of things. God says he's not impressed. They're counted as a small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the islands or the coastlines as a very small thing. Leaven is not sufficient to burn. I wanted to warm my hands Leaven is not big enough to make a fire for me, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. Take all the animals in the nation of Lebanon in the day, and God says, that's not a big enough offering for me. I'm bigger than all that. All nations before him are as nothing. And he goes on and talks about how his judgment is passed, and they're all going to be destroyed. That is not the context of the message of John the Baptist's first arrival before Christ came the first time. Nor does this describe what Jesus Christ did at his first coming. It describes what he is going to do at his second coming. So to me, the context sets the stage for a John the Baptist to come crying in the wilderness, make straight a highway in the desert for our God. We've got to get our character straight, our minds straight, our emotions straight before God. There's a lot of comfort in the end time message once the warfare is accomplished, but there's an awful lot that we have to do and be ready to accomplish ahead of time. Can I see the hands of those who are ready to face the ATF, the United Nations Police, the FBI, and all that they can bring against God's people. Are you ready for that? If you lived in Waco a few years ago, would you have been ready for that? 
Are we ready today? Do we have the spiritual power, the courage, the faith in God to be ready to go before the powers of this world? They may very well be listening in or recording this message today. We cannot hide. We are not against them. At this moment, we are simply trying to obey God in peace and live a life that he would approve rather than one that this world would approve. And the very fact that we are doing that is going to bring us into a clash with this world. It is absolutely inevitable. Last night the euro was up to $1.28. It's only been a week or so that it was at $1.25. And they said that was a psychological threshold it had to get past. And it keeps going up. Gold has gone from $290 about a year ago. Last week it was at $4.15. Last night it was at 426. People are beginning to lose confidence in the dollar, and they're having more confidence in pure physical gold and silver and in the euro. Is this thing a hundred years away? I rather doubt it. Let's go to Luke 1. I'd better get on with this. Here is the story of the pregnancy of Elizabeth and Mary and the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus Christ. Uh, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, had some things to say to him and about the message that he would bring. Verse 67, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This was after he had received his speech back after John was born, and he called him John as the angel had told Elizabeth he would have to be. He didn't speak for nine months. And then he was able to talk. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Is that what we just read in Isaiah 40? Comfort you, comfort you, my people. Your warfare is accomplished, I'll deliver you. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. John was not to be that salvation, but he was to preach of one to come. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies. Is that what we just read in Isaiah 40? And from the hand of all that hate us, from the king of Babylon and from the beast to follow, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. That was an integral part of his message, to remember the holy covenant. And compare that to Daniel 11 where it says there will be those who forsake the holy covenant at the end. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would bless us, that he would grant us land, 
that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. He says, don't fear, in Isaiah 8, this coalition, this conspiracy, fear me. Does John the Baptist's message fit the prophecies for the end time? In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. What is the message to the end-time church? Put on your holy garments. Be holy. Be righteous. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness, for maybe you will be hid. The very basic elements of all the end-time prophecies are found right here in what Zechariah told John he would speak. And he tells his son, And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for you shall go before the face of the Eternal to prepare his ways. How did he prepare the way for Christ? How did he prepare the people for it? We'll see in a little bit what he preached. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. What do we need the most right now? The knowledge of salvation. How to live forever. How to get past all that is about to happen in this world. By the remission of their sins, he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His basic message was repent of your ways, be righteous, and be holy. That is how you are prepared to meet Christ, isn't it? Would any of us want to meet Christ without having become holy and righteous and prepared? I'm not ready to meet him. I hope I have not prepared the way to my door sufficiently. To give knowledge of salvation through the remission and forgiveness of their sins. Isn't he? Didn't he say in Isaiah 40, I will turn and I'll give you double blessing for all that you've gone through as a result of your sins? Through the tender mercy of our God. And that's the only way we're going to be saved is through the mercy of God. Because, brethren, we are not the elite of the world. A lot of people would like to say they're Philadelphians, but I think we are far better off saying we are the weak in the base. But we are not going to stay that way. We're going to come, become powerful through God. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us. Christ brings light. The springing of the day. To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is a world that is full of war and rumors of war. It is a world that does not know the way to peace. 
So the message has to be to show us how to live in peace. And we have not internalized that yet, because we still ourselves have trouble living in peace, don't we? Because of our defects, our faults, our problems, our weaknesses, our attitudes, our self-righteousness, our vanity, and our ego, our carnality. Therefore, the message has to be, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Blessed are the peacemakers. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing to Israel. He stayed out there in the desert and preached until God showed him to Israel. Now let's go to Matthew 3. His message here is summarized. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent you, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So there you see it's a fulfillment of what we just read in Isaiah 40. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. He didn't have all the sophisticated things that that society provided. He went a different route. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him and Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, you generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He went against the leaders, didn't he? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say to you that God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And then he goes on to say that Christ is going to come in much greater power than he ever had. Baptism is not enough. Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized. Repent means change. I submit to you that we did not change enough. We have not changed enough. We've been baptized, but we still need to repent. We need to change. We need to be different than what we are. Let's go to Matthew 11. There's a parallel scripture in Luke, but I'll go to Matthew and not do both for sake of time. Matthew 11. Verse 7. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. Now here's, his, here's what he had to say about John to the people. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind, a little tiny branch that sways back and forth, that compromises, that has no strength in its trunk, but every breeze blows it a different direction? Is that what you came to see? But what went for you to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? 
Fine clothing? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. That's somewhere else. That's not what you came here to see. He told them. But what went you out for to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among them that are born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Luke says a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John the Baptist was a man of strong character, apparently. And he was the strongest prophet that had ever been on the face of the earth. And from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. In other words, it's a struggle. There will be trials, troubles, tribulation. It's difficult. It is going to take a violent change. Do you remember when you first came into the church and you had knowledge of the truth? There were some violent changes in your life. Tough changes that had to be made. We have to be violent with ourselves. For all the prophets in the law prophesied till John, and if you will receive it, this is Elijah which was for to come. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now there he is referring to Malachi 4, and he compares John the Baptist to Elijah. So Christ himself links those two together. We're going to run out of time here, because I want to get to that. But I want to show you one more in Matthew 17. We're talking about it, just do it. <clears throat> now this context is of the transfiguration. Remember the story there where Christ took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and he was transfigured from looking like a human to his glory. That was how he was transfigured. And there appeared Moses and Elijah talking with him. And the disciples said, you want us to build booths? Because this is Feast of Tabernacles time. The resurrection has occurred. He said, no. There's a voice that came from the heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. That was the message James, Peter, and John were supposed to get. That Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Listen to him. And they fell on their face and were afraid. And he came and touched them and says, don't be afraid. Get up. Isn't that what we just read in Isaiah? Don't be afraid. Get up. Stand. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only, verse 8. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. In other words, this is something between us. I don't want you to talk about it until I die and am resurrected. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah, Elijah must first come? Well, if we're supposed to listen to you, what's the purpose of this Elijah coming? Why do they say he has to come? And Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. What is the context here? The context is the resurrection in the beginning of the millennium. 
It's not Christ's first coming to the earth. He is talking about John the Baptist and Elijah in an end-time context. Okay? But I say to you that Elijah has come already. Now, he says there has to be an Elijah come in terms of the resurrection and the millennium and my second coming. But I say there's already been an Elijah here and they didn't hear him. What about at the end time? Is there an Elijah going to come that people won't hear? I expect so. I tell you, he's already come here as a type, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatever they wanted to. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. And they killed him, too. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. But he spoke in an end-time context. He said, one's been here, but I think the implication is that another has to come before the end and the time when Christ will come in glory. I mean, that's what the transfiguration is all about, is Christ glorified. Okay? There had already been a John the Baptist there. Another had to come just before Christ is glorified, or comes in glory. Let's go to Malachi 3. God, Jesus Christ, tied Elijah and John the Baptist together there very neatly in those scriptures we just read. So let's now compare what he says in the book of Malachi. Chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Isn't that what we just read in Isaiah 40 and in these scriptures about John the Baptist? And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Christ is going to suddenly come to the church. He's had his face turned from us, as we've read in many scriptures. He's going to turn it back and suddenly come to it. He will come, says the eternal host, but who may abide the day of his coming? And he ties it to the time of his second coming. I believe he is going to turn his face back to the remnant of his people, of his church, just prior to returning, and he will bless them and he will protect them and take them to a place of safety. But then he will come in glory. Who shall stand when he appears? Now we wonder if we'll be able to stand before the beast. What about standing before Christ? Which do you need guts to do the most? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sift as a refiner and purifier of silver. This is his second coming, obviously. Let's skip on down to chapter 4. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up, says the eternal of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. It says the whole world's going to be burned up But some of you are going to be blessed. Comfort you, comfort you, my people. 
And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Eternal of hosts. Then he gives a parting statement. Remember you the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. One of the two witnesses is going to be a type of Moses, who will explain the law, who will help us understand spiritually what God was trying to get across through Moses. The other will be more in the prophet mold rather than the lawgiver mode. One will symbolize Moses, the other will symbolize Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, we've already seen that John the Baptist and Elijah are linked together. So the message of one is the same as the message of the other. Except that added to it is going against the world and against the ministry as Elijah did before the prophets of Baal. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. The curse of death that comes with sin. And I explained at the end of the Minor Prophets series here in Malachi what it is going to take to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. That it is impossible in the context of today and that Herbert Armstrong and all the YOU programs could not do that. And it cannot be done until some of these end time events begin to occur, miracles occur, and power is given. And then our kids are going to be impressed. So far, they are basically unimpressed. They see a powerless, toothless church in decline that is being torn down stone by stone. That is not impressive to our children. But it is not long before they will be impressed. They'll think then, that's cool. But in the meantime, anything and everything we try to do is basically unimpressive. It's unimpressive to God, it's unimpressive to the world, it's unimpressive to us and to our children. What is the message for today? The end of this age is upon us. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand.